I'd like you to join me in Luke chapter 2. One more Sunday to enjoy this passage that we've been looking at throughout this entire month. And I want to do it again today, especially in light of the fact that we have a communion service set up here uh, for the end of our service today. And I think that's quite appropriate, especially as we focus on verse number 11. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I'm going to read to you this passage again, as I've been doing it every week in a different translation. This one is the one I have the most fun with, I think. Uh, Kenneth Weiss, not a translation you're going to say, oh, I've seen that one before. Uh, Kenneth Weiss was a Greek teacher at Moody Bible Institute before I was ever a student there. But uh, uh, quite a scholar in Greek studies, and and he uh, took the time to translate the whole New Testament from the Greek into English. And, and so he didn't rely upon, you know, what was traditional or customary with words. He, he just said what the Greek words were. And you're going to find it kind of interesting. Uh, have to verse first before we go too far, see if you know what a... Bivouacking, bivouacking is. You know what that is, right? That's camping, if you want a simple term. It's those who live in the tents out there in the, in the uh, thing. He uses that word in here. And that's kind of a surprise word for some of us. We say, huh, okay. So now you know. It's about camping outside. All right? That's the basic idea. And here we go in verse number 8. You can follow along if you'd like. It says, and there were shepherds in that very region, bivouacking in the fields under the open sky, and guarding their flocks during the appointed night watches. And an angel of the Lord took his stand at their side, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they feared a great fear. And the angel said to them, Stop being afraid, for behold, I am bringing you good tidings of great joy which joy is of such a nature that it should pertain to all the people, because there was born to you today a Savior, who is Christ the Lord in the city of David. And this shall be an unusual and distinguishing token of identification for you. You shall find a newborn infant which has been wrapped in cloth bands and is lying in a feeding trough. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the army of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory in the highest places to God, and upon earth peace among men of good will. And it came to pass that when the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds kept saying to one another, Let us go at once, even to Bethlehem, and let us see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came having hastened, and after searching, they located not only Mary and Joseph, but also the newborn infant lying in the feeding trough. And having seen this, they made known concerning the word which was spoken to them about this little child. And all who heard marveled concerning the things which were spoken by the shepherds to them. But Mary kept on continually guarding all these words in her heart and bringing them together for the purpose of considering them to their total import. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things which they heard and saw, just as it was 
told to them. Heavenly Father, again we thank you for the message that this holiday season reminds us of. Thank you for a place in our calendar that's been set aside for us to focus primarily on this great thing you have done in sending your Son for us, our Savior, our Christ, our Lord. We thank you for what you have done. And we thank you for the season that uh, we can spend this time reflecting upon it. We pray your blessing this morning, not only upon your word as it goes forth, but that you in your blessing to us might warm our hearts with it and encourage us with it and challenge us with it and, and accomplish what you have set your word out for in our very lives today. We thank you for that blessing in our life too. You change us. And we love that about you. As we go into your word now to help us to be attentive to it and to glean much from it and then come to this table ready to give praise to a Savior who gave his life for us. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been talking about the gifts that come along with the gift of Jesus Christ. And in this passage we've been looking at several wonderful things. I especially like verse number 11 talks about has been born for you a Savior. That's very, very meaningful to all of us, uh, that we have a Savior. Today we're going to focus on two words, Christ and the Lord. Well, I know it's three there. Two words, Christ and the word Lord. We're going to look at those, and I thought, well, that sounds pretty simplistic, until I had about 13 pages of notes, and I said, well... We're going to be here all day long, but then the youth will be anyway, so what difference does that make? We'll just go with this, but no, I whittled it down a little bit. I only have nine now. So, here we go. Christ and the Lord. This is a fascinating, fascinating study for you. And I want to do this in, a, in an intentional way. Because as we acknowledge the universal need of mankind as a Savior... Because mankind is sinful. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We must have a Savior. God sent us a Savior. And that I praise Him for, especially, that we have a Savior. With that comes two terms. Christ and the Lord. As the author, well, the angel, and then Luke, the author, is recording it for us here. But as the angel declared it, He said, in defining the message, Today has been born for you a Savior, and then he defines a Savior as Christ the Lord. And that's very important for us, because most of my my time with you in this passage has been what we call evangelistic. I've appealed to you often and often uh, throughout this passage, and especially those who might be among us who don't know the Lord. What a great thing to know. This is what Christ has done for you, and I have appealed to you to respond. You as believers as well. Not that you need to be saved again. I grew up that way, by the way, thinking that I needed it almost every week. And uh, so we almost cut a path down the middle of the the, the church, but we were always responding. But we didn't understand how beautiful salvation was then. 
and what God had done for us and that we didn't need to keep coming back. He had given to us that salvation. And you as believers today, there's something that you need to see as well in this passage that I think is very important for us because our Savior is Christ. Our Savior is the Lord. And that's very important for us to understand as we go into this. And so I'm going to move us that way, especially as we're going to partake in a communion service today, because this Savior is our Christ. He is our Lord. And that was promised at His birth. You just saw it there in the text. He is Christ the Lord. And this is what God has given to us. When it says that God gave His only begotten Son... That's an amazing phrase, but do you know how much goes with that? God gave us His only begotten Son. In the book of Matthew, when Joseph heard the message from the angel, the angel said in verse 21 of Matthew 1, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. That was the promise. And that's a message we've been declaring here for the last four or five weeks, is that there is good news. There is good news of great joy, is because we have a Savior, Christ the Lord. So let's look at the side of that that's very important for us today, Christ and the Lord. By the way, Christ is not his last name. Some people see that so often, Jesus Christ. Like, Jesus, that's his first name. Christ was his last name on the birth certificate, right? Uh, that is not his last name, that's his title. And we're going to focus on that. If you're let me, and you don't have a choice to tell the truth, did do a bit of a word study with you today. Alright, I found this very interesting. The word Christ in the Greek is Christos. Sounds just like it, doesn't it? You just take the letters, actually, and transpose them into English. And it spells Christ as close as we would have it in our English. Uh, Christos is the word. It is the anointed one. It is the Messiah. Matter of fact, it's just the Hebrew concept carried into the Greek tongue. The word Messiah is used for this. We use the word Christ. It is speaking of the same individual. That's the Messiah when you say the word Christ. Now, it comes from a very interesting verb. Uh, Creo is not often found in, in usage in the New Testament at all. Creo is the idea of smearing something with oil. Doesn't that sound interesting? To smear something with oil, or to rub oil all over it, it is the practice used when you consecrate a priest or a king to his office. Now, thankfully, when I became a pastor, they were out of that habit. But that was the idea of anointed one to an office. And it used to be, it was meant to be, that the kings of the Old Testament were God's servants. They were supposed to be spiritual leaders among, their, uh, among Israel. And so they were anointed as kings, sometimes even called anointed. David would say that even of, even of King Saul, who wasn't the best guy on the earth, uh, David identified him as the Lord's anointed. He was given that job. And God's hand was upon that position. And the priests too. And so we're studying that a little bit on Sunday nights, how the priests, when they were set for office, had to be anointed with oil. 
And they went. They poured it on their head. And it just dripped down off their beards and all the rest. Uh, the picture of rubbing them or smearing them with oil. That's in the verb form of the word Christ. It means one who's been anointed, appointed, uh, consecrated to a religious office. Which is interesting as you work through this, because the term Messiah, you would think, must be all over in Scripture, right? Old Testament must be full of that word Messiah. And what I found interesting when I started to trace the actual word used for Messiah in the Old Testament, it doesn't pop up until Daniel starts to use it. That's about 500 B.C. That means all the way through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you go all the way through the life of David and Solomon and all those kings, and even to the point of Babylon taking them captive and carrying them off, they had not actually used the term Messiah in Scripture. I said, that was curious to me. And so I had to do a little more research on this to figure out, well, why was it Daniel the first one to actually say that? That's in Daniel chapter 9, by the way. Some of you might be familiar with the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Verse 25 and 26, both of them talk with the term exactly Messiah. That's the first time it pops up in the text. But in the Jewish understanding of this, this is where it gets interesting. That term Messiah was used for their kings. It was used for their priests. It was the anointed one for an office. They were spiritual leaders. They were meant to be consecrated for a special task. And so there was an understanding way back then that the king was supposed to be unique. He was supposed to be special because he was assigned by God in order to do this test. But they found out very early, the kings weren't up to it. (laughs) A lot of the kings were quite evil men. And they said, well, that's just not a good term. We're not going to apply that term to this guy or that guy. I mean, he doesn't seem to look very appointed at all by the kind of behavior we see in this king. Even there were priests like that too. There became a messianic hope developing among the people. They were looking for that one individual who would establish Israel in the world, who would, who would be God's representative, even a personal deliverer. They started to understand that there was something more to that term than just what a man can fulfill. There had to be a special individual, a unique individual, who would bring about all these things they had dreamed of and rescue them from disaster and bring them into a state of, of a kingdom that would last forever. Now, you know those terms popped up often in the Old Testament. Even though the title didn't show up for quite a while, the chief elements of it was there. The concept that a Messiah was coming that would be somewhat of a king, a head of a nation, anointed by the Lord, but especially to save them, most of them thought in a physical way, in a uh, military way, certainly as a national thing, that this one would come in, rescue them in their time of need. Well, Isaiah starts to write. And Isaiah's prophecies are fascinating. And you know them, but they all pop up right around our Christmas story. What the promise was that they were looking for. Somebody extraordinary. Isaiah 7.14 
Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now you know what that name means. God with us. That's unique, isn't it? A man, a child being born, and he's going to signify God with us. That would be his name. And then again in chapter 9 of Isaiah, verse 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. They said, ah, that sounds like the guy we're looking for. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Does that sound like a unique individual to you? Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David or over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That's a unique individual. And they said, that's the one. That's the one we're looking for. Micah, a contemporary of Isaiah, picks up his pen and the Lord gives him a message. And he says in chapter 5, in verse number 2, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And in a new dimension, they would have never considered at all. This one who will rule over them is eternal. Whoa! Isn't that a remarkable concept? Certainly not a man in the normal sense of men that they had as leaders and rulers. This is going to be a unique individual who will be uh, ruling and he's eternal in nature. So, Isaiah keeps going. Chapter 42. This is where it gets interesting. Because Isaiah puts a tag on this individual. He gives him a name and it's not Messiah. It's Servant. And this is where Isaiah starts to use it often in his text. He starts calling him the servant. God says, my servant, my servant, my servant. And this is where Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Very interesting. Because Matthew... In his gospel, when he's speaking about the Lord in chapter number 12. You want to see this. You're not that far away. Go back to Matthew chapter 12. Let me show you something fascinating that happened one day. And Matthew's commentary that goes with it. In Matthew 12, let's start around verse 15. No, let's, let's back up there. Oh, let's back up to verse 1. This is better. Alright, here's the context. Matthew's telling the, the episode where Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field one day. And they're picking grain, which was not uncommon. You could do that back then. All right? You walk through somebody's field, you're hungry, you start picking grain. How, there was one problem, though, as far as the religious leaders were concerned. It was a Sabbath day. And to pick grain on the Sabbath day was considered uh, unlawful. That's work. And so they brought it up before him. They said, uh, you can't do that. Verse 2, the Pharisees saw this and said, look, your disciples, do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day. And Jesus says to him, 
in verse number 3. Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, and he and his companions, how he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, or for the priests alone? Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. Watch these words. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And he walked away. That left them with their mouth wide open. They said, huh? What do you mean? Lord of the Sabbath? He's Lord of the Sabbath? Who was the Sabbath made for? Man? Or was man made for the Sabbath? He asked that question. The Sabbath was made for man. All right. Now, keep going. This is where it gets interesting. He departs from there in verse number 9. And he went into their synagogue. There was a man there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep that falls into a pit on the Sabbath? Will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable, then, is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and was restored to normal like any other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from them. Many followed him. Healed, he healed them all. And warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. You ready? Here it comes. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved one, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Isaiah 42.1 Matthew said, That's the fulfillment! He's the fulfillment! He is the servant that we've been looking for. Matthew just identified it here. Just a beautiful... Look at verse number 20 and 21. A, bre- a battered reed he will not break off. A smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This Messiah is going to be bigger than just for the Jews. He is for the Gentiles too. That's an amazing thing. But that was prophetic. That was from Isaiah's passage. So Matthew makes a link. Isaiah talked about the servant of the Lord appointed to deliver his people, didn't need the term Messiah there, but Matthew understood Jesus was that anointed one. And he made that reference. You just saw it there. I thought that interesting. Here's something else Isaiah said, and you'll recognize this. Isaiah 53. And it's in verse number 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Another element added to this role of this Messiah, this servant of the Lord, not only appointed to lead the people, but appointed to carry away their sins. That's unique. Who qualifies for that? 
who is the only one who is fit to take our place on the cross? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's servant. He was set to justify the many. And so Isaiah brings it out again. Isaiah 49 verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one. Now who's the despised one? The Lord Jesus Christ. To the one abhorred by the nations. That's him too. To the servant of rulers. Kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful and the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Now you say, okay, this is all rather interesting, but what's it all mean? Well, about 150 years later after Isaiah wrote, Zechariah picks up his pen, Zechariah the prophet, and he tells a fascinating story in chapter 3. There are the high priests. His name was Joshua, by the way. He's not the Old Testament Joshua, Jericho, and all that. But Joshua the high priest is standing there in a vision, and he's dressed in his priestly garb, but it's completely ruined. It is just filthy from head to toe down to his feet. Not what you'd expect of a high priest. And there he's standing in his filth, and the Lord commands for him to be cleaned up. Take that turban off. Put a fresh new one on him. Take that robe off to him. Clean him up. And the whole picture was that the Lord was going to take away the sins of the people. That's who Zechariah was talking about in Joshua. The sins of the people. The Lord was going to come and clean him. And this is what is said. This is interesting. In Zechariah 3, 8 and 9. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant. Calls him the branch. Interesting term there. We'll do that some other time. He says, For behold, the stone which I have set before Joshua on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts. And it says this, I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In one day. What could possibly take place in one day that could take care of sin forever? A crucifixion of our, our Savior, God's servant. Fascinating development of this term. Now, everything goes quiet after Zechariah, for the most part. For years and years and years, there's Malachi and there's others who write. But not much is said until Matthew picks up his pen. And here's how he starts. This is great. Matthew 1, 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Said, so, whoa! There's that term just popped up on the page. It had been quiet all the way through the Old Testament. The servant, yes. The anointed one, yes. The Messiah, there it is. Matthew calls him such. He says it again when Joseph hears that message. She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. And this is where it goes on in Matthew 1.16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. There was no doubt. There was no doubt that Jesus was the Messiah. None whatsoever. And you're convinced of that yourself, aren't you? You, could, you easily put those terms together. But here's what's interesting. In Matthew chapter 2, remember when the wise men came to the king? King Herod and wanted to know? 
Where is he who is born king of the Jews? He'd seen a star in the east. We've come to worship him. Here's the answer. This is great. Matthew 2 verse 4. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, Herod, inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They had no doubts either. That term Messiah was heard by the shepherds too. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That had to have been a stunning term to have heard. We say it so commonly because we link it with everything. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. To them, the Messiah was born. That was significant. That was greatly significant. God raised up his servant. This is the way Peter preached it in Acts chapter 3, verse 26. God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. He came for a purpose. Let me put it together. You ready? It's real simple. The Messiah was God's unique servant. Appointed to rule over God's people. Anointed to do God's will. Anointed to rescue God's people from their greatest enemy. And that wasn't Assyria. And that was not Babylon. And that was not Rome. That was sin. And the penalty of sin, death. And that's what the Messiah came for. Over the years, the Jews have assumed certain men were the Messiah. You study their history. They say, oh, this rabbi was the Messiah. This rabbi was the Messiah. And all those kind of things. They have gravestones all over the place marking their Messiahs. There's only one true Messiah. And there isn't a gravestone there. There's an empty grave. You see, not only does he have the task to deliver. And that is to redeem us from our sins. But he also has the authority to do it. Christ, the Lord. I want to add this second side to it this morning, because the Lord speaks of authority. And as a believer, we ought to learn that term well. Because we appreciate Christ as our Savior, but He is also your Lord. And He is always the Lord. Too many people go about assuming that, well, that part of it's not so important. That part of it is very important. That Jesus Christ is the Lord, isn't he? When did he stop being the Lord? He is the Lord. That's authority. Christians, we need to learn that term. Because just as we're called to follow the Lord, we're to live up to what he saved us for, he has authority. Kyrios is the term. It's an interesting Greek word. It comes from the word kiros, which means supreme. Supreme in authority. He's the controller. He is our Lord. He's our master. But it's even used for the term God. Here's Thayer's definition. I find them interesting. Uh, The word kiros, the word Lord. He to whom a person or thing belongs about which he has the power of deciding. He is the master. He is the Lord. He's the possessor and the disposer of a thing. He's the owner. He's the one who controls the person. He's the master. In a state, he is sovereign. He's prince. He's chief. He's the emperor. In a title of honor, he gets respect. 
he gets reverence, the ser- as, especially as a servant greets her master, master. As a title is given to him, God, the Messiah. What an interesting combination of terms. Go with me back to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter number 1. This is John, the author of the book, God giving him the visions that he needs to see and write. And in Revelation chapter 1, he gets a glimpse of Jesus Christ. Now, this was the same man who walked with Jesus for three or so years. He was the one who watched him go onto a cross, watched, saw him after the resurrection, served him for the next 60 years of his life. That's John. John, who knew Jesus very well. And in chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, your brother, fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, which on the island called Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit of the Lord, or spirit, on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in the book what you see. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the seven lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. That's who he just saw. He's he's going to get to see his Savior, Jesus Christ, who he knows very well, but listen to this. And having turned, I saw one in the middle of the lampstands, like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His hair, his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, which had been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And watch these words. I have the keys of death and of Hades. You have to understand something, and I I hope I could express this right. A Messiah was sent to deliver. A Lord has the authority to make it stick. He was both. He had the authority over sin. He had the authority over death. He had the authority over hell. He says, I have the keys. I was dead, but I'm alive. I have the keys. I have the keys. You see, he was never diminished in any way in service when he was on that cross. That is the service he came for. Some people say, oh, you're so weak at that point. He, he was so pathetic at that point. They were looking upon one whom they pierced. Yet that was his fulfillment of service, if you will. Dying on a cross. That was the beauty of it all. As a servant, he died on a cross. But he never diminished in authority either. Because he's the Lord. And as he's the Lord, he has the keys of death. 
He has the keys of hell. This is how Colossians is recording the message. In chapter 1, I'll take you there because our time's just about up and we need to look at this table together. But in Colossians chapter number 1, I'm going to turn a few pages here. Verse number 12. Watch these words, they're beautiful. This is where Paul writes, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance in the saints of, light, of the saints of light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And in that Son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, speaking of that Son, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, that's Jesus Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. If that's not authority, I don't know what is. And look what else it says. Before Him was all things, and in Him all things hold together. He also is the head of the body. The church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. That's our Lord. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, that is, I say, whether the things on the earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You know what that says? Our Savior is both Christ and Lord. He's the deliverer, and he's the authority. And he did it all. What a powerful message that is. That's what he's done for you. And that's why someday you can stand before him, just like it just read, holy, blameless, beyond reproach, because of what he has done. That's fascinating to me. You know what? I just barely scraped the surface of this whole topic. If you want to study more on Lord, it'll blow you away. More on the Christ. It's an amazing thing. But that was the announcement made to the shepherds. That day they heard powerful words, didn't they? Incredible words. He saved us, folks. He was commissioned as God's servant to save us. And He has the authority as the Lord to save us. Both of those in that title those titles given to him. That's the value of our remembrance today. Why we come to this every week, or every every fifth Sunday that comes along. Why do we do that? It's to remember. Just like he told us, do this in remembrance of me. We have to remember who he is. Why? Why do we need a reminder? Isn't that sad to say it that way? Why must we be told again? This is our Lord. This is our Savior. This is our Deliverer. This is what He's done for us. But we need that reminder. 
He gave himself for us that we might have all spiritual blessings in him. All things freely given to us by the Father because he willingly gave his Son in the first place. That's the message that the shepherds heard that day. Powerful message.